Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. It's a big day in America with the verdict that came out of Minnesota last night. It's uh, provided a lot of relief to people. There was a chance the nation could explode in violence if it had gone the other way. We'll be talking about that on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson, who joins us on Wednesdays. Good morning, everybody. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Happy so snow day. Yeah, I can't believe how much <laughs> snow we got in April, but it'll be gone. It's going to be gone. Yeah. It's all, you know, I just hope the flowers today. <laughs> we'll see. Let's get going. You could argue this is not a local story, but I would argue it is the most local of stories. The conviction of Derek Chauvin in the murder of George Floyd was a moment of reckoning for the country, for Ohio, and for Cleveland. So let's talk about it. Jane Cahoon, I, I got to tell you, I, when the verdict came, it was, it was just relief. I, I mean, it was a fist pump moment that the right thing happened. I don't think anybody could look at this case and not come away with the conclusion this was murder. It is completely the definition of murder, but we were all worried that the jury wouldn't right. see it that way. That, that's what really struck me. I mean, you didn't have to watch very much of this trial to see how overwhelming the evidence was against him. Not only visual, look at it with your own eyes, but all the experts and law enforcement people who said this was not right. The thing that struck me, though, was how many people really doubted, and I was one of them, that the jury would come back with the guilty verdicts. It's, you know, we've just seen it play out over and over again where justice is not served. And so now we have one case where justice was served and, you know, it's big, but, but, and it feels like it, it's a turning point, but it's one case. And, you know, you really, when you look at the big picture, I don't know, you know, I don't have a lot of faith that our Congress is going to come together on anything, but something like police reform and justice reform to address this issue as it needs to be addressed. So I just, while I, you're right, it was a fist pump moment. It, you know, when you kind of take a step back and, and uh, look at the big picture, it's still sort of, okay, is this, is this the moment? Are things going to change? Well, look at it, though. In the, in the middle of the verdict, Columbus police shot and killed a teenage girl. We've had two law enforcement shootings in the past week. Olivia Mitchell, we published her special episode of this podcast yesterday where she talked to people about that. One of those is really shaky. It's a DEA agent that seems to have shot somebody with no provocation, really. And there are a lot of questions about that. So police are still shooting black people in, in 
huge numbers and and it is scary as hell it's and we've seen there's evidence of white supremacism in police forces this case though i mean if you weren't going to get a conviction in this case you would never get a conviction in any case because this one with the video and and like you said all of the police officials saying yeah this is completely wrong i mean he drained the life out of this man for more than nine minutes it's like the cruelest most inhumane thing you can imagine doing to somebody and it had to be a conviction so i it's just sad you're right that we're all even though it's so obvious we're all sitting there going you know oh my god i is america going to screw this up seth uh, richardson laura johnston what was your feeling when you heard about it you know i kind of wondered to myself you know, because, you know, I saw the reaction to it and I think everybody was kind of on pins and needles for a moment, you know, for a while, honestly, once, you know, that hour where they said the jury has a verdict and it's going to be, you know, read seemed like the longest hour imaginable while I'm, you know, just refreshing like, OK, what's happening? But I, I did kind of wonder to myself afterward, so often with, you know, things like these and with uh, movements and whatnot. A lot of people want to put kind of, you know, finite wrapping on it, right? Where they see this as like, oh, this is the the moment that the problem is solved or something like that. And I mean, I don't, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear that's not the case. There's going to be a trial in Columbus not too, you know, not too long from now with, you know, the Andre Hill case who was killed last year. But I, I do sort of wonder to myself in the public consciousness, um, you know, is is this going to be kind of a moment where, you know, do people continue to have, you know, the, the feelings that they've had for the past year or do they point to this and as kind of the example, like, well, no, see, you know, things have changed. They they convicted this cop. And, you know, that that's sort of been the thought circulating in my head. I, I, I don't know the answer to it, but uh, I, I do wonder what the, the the sort of, you know, sentiment and feeling is a year from now when things like this are probably still happening. It's got to be the first step of many steps. I mean, Joe Biden said it in his address to the nation. We, we've got to address this. It's got to stop. White police officers have got to stop shooting black people. It's, it, it just happens way too frequently. Laura Johnston, what did you think? Well, I was really taken with Eric Heisig's story about the rally that was held downtown at Public Square last night. It was planned quickly before the verdict was read. So regardless, they were going to be out there. There was about 40 people out there. People expressed relief, but he really tied it closely to the May 30th riots, which, of course, happened after George Floyd was murdered. And you look back, it's been almost a year and you look at the change in this country through the pandemic. And it's like I feel like George Floyd's death really galvanized this country and and made the Black Lives Matter movement so much more prevalent everywhere. And I hope that this verdict does the same thing where you feel like things might really be changing. But I agree with what everybody has said so far. It is so disheartening when you just look at the number of police killings in in the last week, right? And you think, okay, this is a step forward, but God, there are a lot of steps to go. Well, and the fact that that Columbus police would shoot and kill somebody as the verdict is coming out, you would (sighs) think you'd be even more careful. And, you know, they were right away trying to justify it, saying, well, we were protecting somebody else. But I don't know, the things you see... I did get to see Eric Isaac. I had raced down there to distribute the the gas masks and vests that we send people out when they have to cover protests now. Uh, and it was good to see Eric. It was good to see Hannah Drown and a couple of our photographers were there. Hopefully soon we'll be all seeing each other face to face. It's remarkable how long we've gone without laying eyes on each other. 
You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the practical implication of the suspension of Ken Johnson as a city councilman while felony charges are pending against him in federal court? Lord Johnson, I, I was actually a little bit surprised that he was suspended because it seems like a lot of the people that do bad things get to keep doing their jobs. Larry Householder, Larry Householder, Larry Householder. <laughs> so, so what is this about and, and what does it actually mean for city council? So this is a suspension that came down from a panel of three retired judges that were appointed by Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor in March. And they believe that the charges against Johnson, which um, are 15 charges from a grand jury that's accused him of swindling the council and, you know, taxpayers out of $127,000 by submitting false expense reports, as well as kind of a host of other schemes. They say that those charges relate directly to his position in public office and so that the rights and interests of the public would not be served if he were allowed to keep being on city council. So if the suspension stands, Johnson can't participate in the business of council. He can retain his title as a councilman. He can continue to receive his salary of nearly $87,000, and he can still run for re-election. But in the meantime, the probate court would appoint an interim replacement. When you talk about his salary, we should remind people that he retired uh, sometime back and then ran again. So he's not only getting the salary, he's getting his pension from years of getting his salary. The idea that he's still called the councilman is is odd. And he, he is up for re-election in November and uh-huh. appears to be running. He has a lot of opposition already, but you know he's been a councilman for 40 years. And I just to be it'll be interesting to see whether the people in his ward decide you're a crook, you don't deserve to represent us or they bring him back again, kind of like Larry Householder's constituents did. But but if you use the logic that the crimes he is accused of directly impact the job of councilman, then you turn the big the big fiery eyeball in the direction of the legislature and say, why doesn't that apply to Larry Householder? He is accused as the mastermind of the biggest bribery scheme in the history of Ohio. He is indicted on racketeering charges directly related to his job. He scammed the people of Ohio for billions of dollars that he wanted to give to First Energy. How does he still be in his his job? Jane Coon? (laughs) Well, that's because of his uh, fellow Republicans in the legislature, in the House specifically, who refused to oust him. They keep dithering around with this. Uh, We thought they were going to do it earlier in the year, but apparently there are some supporters there of him who are making it difficult for this to happen. So so Ken Johnson steals, if if he's convicted, 100,000 something. (laughs) Larry (laughs) Householder masterminds a $60 million bribery scheme and he gets to keep his job. Well, it's up to the House in this case with Householder. Whereas at least with Ken Johnson, Dave Yost was able to, you know, take action and force the issue. I don't think that would be so easy in the case of Householder. Seth I think, Richardson, yeah, I think, I, I think the simple answer for Householder specifically is kind of a craven one, and that's that they need his vote to override any Mike DeWine vetoes, you know, specifically as it was relating to some of the laws they were passing to upend his ability to, you know, introduce health orders and whatnot. So I I do think it kind of boils down to a pretty craven reason that they haven't, you know, kicked householder out of office because, you know, this is like, these are, these are very serious allegations and it's not like 
there's just some person who is saying it into the ether like this is a federal investigation there's a lot of documentation and uh that that would just be kind of the reason that i think it's going on and but yeah they're they're essentially saying yeah we're cool with him getting i I can't remember what the tally is at this point but you know twenty thousand dollars of the public money through his legislative salary essentially to serve as one vote in a veto override of mike we we should probably start doing a daily story about how many days it's been that he's been on his job since he was first indicted. Just put it up every day. It's day 223 that the the House is leaving him in the job since he was indicted in the biggest prior scheme. It's day 224. Maybe create one of those websites, you know, is Larry Householder still in office.com? And it's just that, you know, every day, every day you click on it, it's a yes until it's a no. And just keep putting up the numbers. How many days has he been allowed? How much money has he collected in salary during that time? Or maybe, or maybe a Twitter bot that, you know, you, like every day it just tweets Larry Householder is still in office. <laughs> or maybe we should change the system so that the system we use for Ken Johnson can be used with the legislature. Because Dave Yost has made no secret that he thinks that Householder should be gone as well. Can we add in one thing, though, that Householder was reelected? Like he he was up for reelection and he got reelected. But he had no opponents on the yeah, ballot. No right. Because he was but, indicted. I mean, after. there were write-ins, but yeah. there was, yeah. It's too late. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the status of the grassroots movement to allow public comment at Cleveland City Council meetings, and how might this play into the race for mayor? Seth Richardson, you're covering the mayor's race. That's why I ask the question this way. But I do want to point out that it's been decades and decades since the last time the public could stand up at a city council meeting and say something. Yeah, Clevelanders for Public Comment has really been putting pressure on, you know, council and I'm and they're going to put a lot of pressure on the mayoral candidates to support opening council meetings for public speaking time, which is, you know, it, it Cleveland is an outlier in this regard, right, where they don't allow the public to come and make comment for any amount of time. Normally when you go into council meetings, you there is a chance for you to go speak for 2-3 minutes something like that and bring up issues that the, the idea is you bring up issues that the council may not be thinking about. They did get a pretty big boost by they, they, they now ha- say they have a majority of council who supports their effort to add some kind of public comment time to council meetings. I would guess that you're going to see that list grow. And I think it's I think you're going to be hard pressed to find any of the mayoral candidates who are going to be able to actively come out against this. Um, you know, Kevin Kelly, uh, council president, is running and, you know, at his announcement, a couple of supporters for Clevelanders for public comment, you know, showed up and, you know, Kevin Kelly was asked about it and kind of gave some tepid support to it. He said he, he's, you know, open to exploring the idea, but generally speaking, he supports transparency. So I, I, I think this is something that is, you know, both likely to occur and likely to get a lot of widespread support from all of the candidates right, because you don't want to be the candidate who says, no, I don't support hearing from the public. OK, but the problem is Kevin Kelly's been council president for years. And he could have done this unilaterally. So I would think the other candidates could say, Kevin Kelly, you're to blame for why there's no public comment. If you believed in public comment at meetings, you could have done it on your own and you didn't. So doesn't that work against him as an issue? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That that, that is no question. People are going to attack him for it because he's been on there for so long. And, but, you know, you could sort of say the same thing. You know, Zach Reed was on council for a while, too. So. It, it, it's going to kind of depend where it comes from. My guess is that, uh, you know, Justin Bibb will probably be the one who can use it the most because he, you know, he wasn't on council and 
if you want to make yourself seem like, yes, I'm, I'm in touch with the community and I'm from the community and I'm, you know, speaking the, you know, their truth, then yeah, it, it is a very good attack line for that because there's, you know, frankly, no reason for there not to be public comment. There, there's absolutely no. Reason. Well, no, actually, there, there, I mean, there is because when you think of a city council meeting, you think about all of the suburbs where one night every month or every two weeks or what have you, the elected officials get together and discuss policy and vote on things. City council, Cleveland City Council doesn't work that way. They they mash out all of their legislation in in an open series of committee meetings where where one piece of legislation could go through three committees before it gets to the council. And that's where they talk about it. That's where they amend it. That's where lawyers speak up. And the public is supposed to be able to talk there, although it's not the easiest thing to do. That that seven o'clock Monday council meeting is a strange animal because I don't know if you if anybody's ever been there, but I used to cover it. You have all of city council. You have all of the administration chiefs. You generally have the mayor in the room together, but there's no discussion of anything. Somebody stands at the front and drones on reading the captions of legislation into the record. Nobody listens. And then when they finish, they largely vote for all of it en masse. There's occasions where they might pull one piece out so somebody can vote no, but generally everybody votes. It's all that goes. Nothing of substance happens there. It is completely automated, even though you have everybody who's anybody in the city there. It just doesn't make sense. If you get all these people together that you don't have some kind of discussion. So this would be, if they allowed public comment, like the one thing that is new, you know, the city council people all get up and drone on. I rise tonight to talk about blah, blah, blah. But if you allowed the public to speak, it would actually probably make the meetings somewhat interesting because they're not interesting now. Yeah. And I don't think that the public should necessarily have to play kind of this whack-a-mole with committee meetings. Like if you are a citizen and you want to go address something to the city council, especially the city council as a whole, right? You know, if you want to make sure all of them know, what are you going to do? Like, if you're not necessarily the most politically savvy, you are going to look up when a council meeting is, you are going to want to go to that meeting just to air your grievance or bring up an issue or anything like that to the council as a whole. So that 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 is why it makes the most sense. There's There's no reason to make it more difficult for the public to speak to city council you know, than it, than it is, or there's well, no reason for it to be as difficult as it is, I guess I should say. And in addition, those committee meetings are all in the daytime when most people are working. Yeah. What this would allow is if, if, say they introduce a piece of legislation to say, you know, you can't have real estate signs in your yard because it makes the neighborhood look bad. Once they introduce that, then it goes through the committees. This would give you a chance before the committees start mashing it up to show up at a council meeting and say, Hey, that thing that's been introduced, that's really stupid. I won't be able to sell my house. We want some exceptions, which could insert those comments into the legislative process before it's brought back to the council for final passage. So it, 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 it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. It's going to extend those meetings by a half hour. And I got to tell you, I sat through a lot of them. They were pretty <laughs> interminable already. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does Congressman Anthony Gonzalez feel some urgency in setting a federal standard for compensating college athletes for the use of their names and images? Jane Kuhn, it's always seemed unfair to me that college athletes don't get paid because everybody else is. But what is driving Gonzalez to push this hard? Well, he, he pushed it earlier and now he's reintroducing it. But the urgency is that states like Florida and Mississippi 
have already passed laws that allow college athletes to make these endorsement deals. And so he really feels we got to have this federal standard to use a bad pun to have an even playing field. You know, (laughs) I should mention at this point that he's a uh, former star wide receiver for the Ohio State Buckeyes and the Indianapolis Colts. But uh, he's also a Republican, but the bill has bipartisan support. So I think it got kind of detoured the last time because of the pandemic and other priorities. But uh, this bill would allow these athletes to to sign endorsement contracts, but they couldn't be touting products like tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, gambling, or adult entertainment. So, you know, they could block the students from wearing branded clothing or gear during competitions. But um, anyway, they, they would have at least the opportunity to, to make some money and not be taken advantage of. When you look at the amount of money that the colleges make and the amount of money that the coaches are paid all on the backs of a bunch of people on the field who are getting nothing except possibly a chance to move into the big leagues like the NFL, it does seem unfair. I mean, a lot of these kids come from pretty meager backgrounds to begin with and to have them playing, they say, well, they get the college education. Yeah. Okay. What's that worth compared to what you paid an Urban Meyer or a Tom Day? And these are the guys doing all the work. It just seems like it's basic fairness. But the idea that some states have already done it, I, you know. that Right. <laughs> that, that uh, Gonzalez said he really fears then these athletes are going to flock to those states where, where they can make some money. So it's going to set up the system that's really wacky, you know. Well, I mean, I would think that would almost be automatic. If you're a kid, you're an 18-year-old kid, and you got a chance to go make some big bucks right away instead of, holding off for four years until you might or might not get drafted, why wouldn't you? The evening of the playing field seems like it's it's pretty important. It's bipartisan support, right? He's got he's got people yeah, on Yeah, right. So, you know, he, he's been pretty good at working in a bipartisan way. So so we'll see if it goes somewhere this time. So given how crazy this state is for the Buckeyes, has there been any move in our legislature to pass something that allows the, the players to get paid? Because, you know, the legislature would be really upset if suddenly the Buckeyes weren't a contender every year. Yeah, I, I could be wrong, but I'm not aware of any of that type of legislation yet. We'll have to check into that. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are some downtown groups doing to help make sure that the restaurants have enough workers on hand to handle any crowds that we see in Cleveland for the NFL draft next week? Laura Johnson, it's a big unknown just how many people will be downtown. Maybe it'll be a lot of local people that want to get out of the house after a year of the pandemic. But we did a story recently that said restaurants can't find any workers, and so they're not able to get up to full speed. What's the possible remedy here? Right. So the Downtown Cleveland Alliance and a couple other groups are trying to make it easier to match people looking for work with these businesses that need employees. They've got like 140 different groups, uh, different employers looking for people from servers, hosts, dishwashers, front desk workers. We're mostly talking restaurants and hotels, but there's like a barbershop on there. They're all downtown and they're saying, yes, we need workers for the draft, which you're thinking, oh my gosh, that's a week away. But they also need them after the draft because they believe people are coming back to downtown. They think the office workers are coming back, baseball's in full swing, and they expect people to want to be downtown this year. So I hope they have some good luck finding people because 
right. The story Mark Bona wrote last week, it says, you know, it's really difficult to find people who want to work in the restaurant industry right now. Yeah, it'll, I mean, they don't have a lot of time to get people on hand. It's going to have to be a rush job to do it. But again, we don't know how many people will be downtown. And if it's a day like today, probably not many. Because <laughs> who wants to go out in this mess? This was the danger of having the outdoor draft in Cleveland this time of the year. Because we do get snow on occasion. Well, that's the funny thing. Because we were talking about, like, could this mean we could get a Super Bowl? And every, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, Super Bowl's in late January, early February. Nobody wants to come to Cleveland. But, hey, you can make it for May and you can have snow. <laughs> right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With Steve Stivers out of the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate race, how is the battle likely to go now? Seth Richardson, when we talked to you last week, Steve Stivers was seen as the possible sane person to enter the Republican primary, the one hope that you'd have somebody that's not a toady to Donald Trump. But he's out. Are we just stuck with toadies? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there was probably a collective sigh of relief from the field when Stivers got out because, you know, he is a very serious candidate, could have had a lot of backing from the business community and, uh, frankly, a lot of national donors. He's able to pull in some money through his, um, you know, past positions as, uh, chair of the NRCC and, you know, being the ranking member on the finance committee. I think what we're going to see now, I think this makes one candidate getting in much more likely, and that is Dayton Congressman Mike Turner. I think that he is is probably almost a lock to get in now. Now, I haven't talked to his people or anything, but just looking at the dynamics, if you have Stivers in the race, it makes it much harder for Turner, who's, fr who's frankly been, you know, who's opposed Trump more than Stivers ever did, right? You know, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he voted against the president's health care repeal. He was one of the few Republicans who did. So I, I think that he is going to get in and he is probably going to try to occupy that lane of the not necessarily anti-Trump Republican, but the person who is not subservient to Trump, that kind of middle ground that uh, has been, frankly, absent in the Republican Party. Well, you said there was a sigh of relief in my instant question was, can Toady sigh? I, I just don't know. The, <laughs> I, I, it, it's a depressing state of affairs because after the campaign finance reports came in, you know, he was he was cruising. So it was just a stunner when he, he dropped out. Jane mentioned the other day Matt Dolan could get in. What would you think his chances would be not being beholden to Trump? Frankly, a little low. Just because Matt Dolan is a state senator, he doesn't necessarily have the profile of some of the other candidates. And if you look at where the candidates are from right now in terms of regional, they're pretty much all from Northeast Ohio. So that probably plucks away some of his support. Now, that doesn't mean that he can't come in and be competitive as kind of the, you know, like a quote unquote serious candidate or something like that. But I do think it makes it much harder for him in terms of having a path to victory when, you know, you've got Josh Mandel from, you know, the East Side, you've got, Bernie Moreno and Mike Gibbons, who are going to have some support up here. And then you've got Jane Timken from Akron. So it's pretty Northeast Ohio heavy. And that's why I think that, you know, if somebody from like, you know, a Dayton or a Cincinnati or Columbus decides to get in, I think that they have a chance to kind of get a lot of that regional support that might be lacking right now because everything is so concentrated up here. I don't know, though. Matt Dolan is very well respected. And it was it, you mentioned Josh Mandel being from Northeast Ohio, but when I announced that we would not be writing about Josh Mandel's ridiculous race baiting statements and things like that, I heard from a lot of Republicans who actually brought up Matt Dolan and said, 
you know, God, it can't be Josh Mandel. He can't be the candidate. They really dislike him. And then they would say, you know, why don't we get somebody of substance like a Matt Dolan? I think Republicans are looking for somebody who is their own person, who knows how to work across the aisle. He's an intriguing possibility because he does have a big name. Uh, and I- even though he's from Northeast Ohio, that that could carry weight. You mentioned Bernie Moreno, but you know people don't know who Bernie Moreno is, and he's another one that wants desperately wants Donald Trump's approval. Uh, and Mike Gibbons, no one knows who he is. I mean, he, he's just a guy with a lot of money. Matt Dolan's been around a long time. You don't think that that would that would help? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because it's something in politics that I'm never 100% certain on, and that is the name, right? The Dolan name is known up here. But it's kind of this bleed over effect that I wonder if happens, like how many people are frankly happy with the Dolans right now, considering, you know, what what happened with the Indians offseason. And, you know, if the team's doing well, then, yeah, that's going to be great. That'll look great for him. But, you know, if it turns out that, like, you know, trading Francisco Lindor, a bunch of people were very upset about that. Does that have anything to do with politics? No, frankly not. But, you know, people internalize these things where, they just see a name and instantly associate kind of negative connotations with it. I think that is a factor that is is tough to quantify or explore necessarily, but I think it is one that can't be ignored because sports are an everyday part of Americans' lives. So the, the way I always explain it is if people feel like inconvenienced or something by a politician, they are much less likely to vote for him. So I, I think it is something that could very well work for him, but I think it's also an inherent risk just because the Dolans are out there so public. Okay. I'll have to leave it there. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. And thank you, Seth. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.